Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. And I've got on the board and actually on the mic. Hey, hey. Krista Baruti. My mic has been taken from me all day. <laughs> Published I live music to talk. composer, voice <laughs> talent, and executive producer here in the Top Docs Radio How Show. How are you doing today at CW? We've had a busy day. It's been busy. We had uh, tons of folks through the studio today, and we've got some more uh, people here in studio we're looking forward to introducing to everyone. Yes. Why don't you introduce us to our lovely guest today? As we know, every second Tuesday of the month, we sit down with folks from the Medical Association of Georgia, and they've been introducing us to a number of folks that are important to their efforts to advocate on behalf of the physicians across the state of Georgia, 7,500-plus members uh, in all. So uh, we're happy to be collaborating with them to make these shows possible and help share the information that uh, is important to their efforts. So um, uh, with that... um, I've got Donald Pomisano. I'm glad to have him back in studio. Got to meet him back in September of last year. He's the executive director and CEO of the Medical Association of Georgia. Thanks for taking some time. Well, thank you. Thank you all for having us today. We really do appreciate it. And introduce us to uh, to our other guest here. He's uh, going to tell us a little bit about correctional medicine, and it's a, a topic I'm sure a lot of people don't know much about it, you know, and I think Clyde will be able to uh, kind of echo that as we get started here, but introduce us to your other guest here. Well, this is Clyde Maxwell. He's a director of our Correctional Medicine Program, uh, which is a committee within the Medical Association of Georgia. So um, Clyde's been with us now for over uh, 15 years. Um, He's done a fantastic job with correctional medicine and ensuring that um, those that are incarcerated in in the state um, are receiving the medical care um, that 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 is due to them as patients. That's so, right. So with that, I'd like to introduce Claude. Thanks for taking some time. I know you had to travel to, to be here as a part of the show, so thanks for making the trip. Thanks, C.W. appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk to you about correctional medicine. So take us back in time a little bit and, and share with us kind of how you came to be a part of correctional medicine, and then we can kind of dive down into correctional medicine in and of itself and how Medical Association of Georgia began to get involved with the, the, the site of correctional medicine and trying to help improve the care that those folks were getting and, um, you know, taking care of some issues that they had identified. But take us through kind of your background and how you got to be where you are today. Mercy me. That's a long story. <laughs> but the short version is I'm a hospital administrator by profession. Uh-huh. Heard about an exciting opportunity with the Medical Association of Georgia. Interviewed for it. Uh, was reserved about it initially. But then since working with physicians happens to be one of my fortes, I thought, why not? I'll give it a whirl. And I've been here 15 years, as you just heard Donald say. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that, that <laughs> it's got to be somewhat rewarding because it's, it's a challenging space. Um, I, I'm sure resources are somewhat limited to a certain extent, so there's always a bit of a juggling act as it relates to um, equipment, recruiting, things like that, getting physicians, because obviously you need top-level physicians for those folks just as bad as as uh, any other community out there. So getting the, the physicians that you need, it's a shortage going on everywhere, as we've talked about on one of our previous episodes with the Medical Association of Georgia. So to be able to 
come and be a part of the program now, as Donald was saying, for going on 15 years. That means you're doing some things right and must have been really kind of helping improve the landscape in that space. So I'm sure that's got to be somewhat rewarding for an administrator like yourself. Thank you. You're very kind. Actually, we work very closely with Georgia Regents University, and they are charged by the state of Georgia right now for the provision of all the physicians at the correctional facilities in the state. And when I say correctional facilities, I'm talking about the Department of Corrections prisons. I'm not talking about the individual prisons or jails, which are in the counties. Those are county option, and they run those as they see fit. So when we look at the the space of correctional medicine and, and medical associations of Georgia's involvement with it, um, I know that there were some issues that were kind of identified back years ago, back in the 70s. There were some things going on in the country uh, within the, the correctional space in general, uh, and that kind of brought to light that there were some gaps, if you will, or some needs for improvement within the way healthcare was delivered to those patients. And I, apparently some of the events that kind of transpired around those times were kind of based on that. So take me back, you know, how did Medical Association of Georgia kind of get aligned with overseeing and trying to improve this particular specialty? Happy to. You've got to realize first and foremost that the physicians in the state of Georgia are very dedicated about what they do. And they are passionate about certain things. And this was foremost brought to light after the prison riots in the early 60s, way back in Attica. And, of course, that was federal involved there. So the Department of Federal Prisons, along with the National Sheriff's Association, got together and said, hey, we got to do something about this. And they contacted AMA, AMA being AMA, as they are, put out the request that they would like to be assisted in developing some nationwide standards. Georgia and one other state volunteered. Georgia took the bull by the horns, quite frankly, because so many of the physicians within the state were already working at not only the DOC prisons, but the state jails. And these physicians sat down and thought about it, and they came up with some standards, which ultimately became the standards which are known today by the National Commission for the Correctional Health Care. And incidentally, the Medical Association of Georgia currently has a physician on that board of directors and always has. We're kind of proud of that. I would imagine. Yeah. So it shows that you're kind of shaping the landscape nationally uh, in addition to here locally for our folks here. That's right. When, when this originally started, it started off as a committee for prison health because that's what it was referred to. These were prisons. But as the times have evolved and medicine has changed, it's become known as Committee for Correctional Medicine. And you mentioned the physicians a moment ago that work in these facilities. These are all vetted by Georgia Regents University. They look at their backgrounds, their training. Most of them are board certified. But they must have a current Georgia license with no stipulations as to any deficiencies whatsoever that would prohibit them from working in correctional medicine. If there's such a stipulation on the license, they may not work there. And that's one of the things that I noticed as I kind of looked over um, – some background for today's show that there were a number of things that kind of came to light in terms of deficiencies, whether it was certain documents like licensures, for, for example, things like that, that weren't necessarily followed very closely or accurately, you know, obviously then exposing patients and their care to potential risk. So can you talk about some of the things that we've uncovered that the Medical Association of Georgia's involvement then began to help make some improvements on? Sure. No problem there. Each three years, a committee from this 
Committee on Correctional Medicine, goes to the respective facility. It's headed up by a member of that committee, not the same member. It's based on where they live in Georgia. And we review a number of things within the uh, facility we're reviewing. And some of these things that we've turned up is licensure. We have found copies of licenses not valid or not on, on record, as they should be. We found some in the mental health area where they were not supposed to be working there. And, of course, those people were invited to depart. We found that they needed to have current CPR, ACLS. Part of the physician's review of a particular facility includes all the pharmaceuticals to include the pharmacy. They found some, in some cases, expired pharmaceuticals on the crash cart. <clears throat> That's a big no-no, as you can imagine. And in particular prison that they went to, they found that the narcotics drawers in the ER were not locked. It's well, probably a problem. Heaven forbid. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're in the civilian community in, in my hospital or whether you're in right. a prison. You better have those controlled substances you under lock just put and a, key. Please, these are prescription only. No, you cannot. Sign on there. No way. And yeah. you, have, you have to sign for them twice. That's right. Once when you come on duty and once when you leave, as you well know. And it's in one jail that we were in recently, get this, if you can believe it, the nurse that came on signed for the controlled substances at the time she came on, and she also made the mistake the same day that we were there of signing out at the same time. Hence, that made that facility or whoever wanted to go in there and take pharmaceuticals a scapegoat. So talk about that a little bit, because one of the things I know that you did was developed an, a, a process of accreditation where... You were looking at certain things, some some of the which you listed here that kind of gives a process, gives a level of, of performance as it relates to some of these key uh, facets of providing safe and uh, good clinical care. So talk about the accreditation process. From what I understand, you began to accredit the, the correctional medicine facilities that you were following back in the 80s, and, and, and there's some value to that. And I know that some of the funds from that process kind of help keep this program going and help maintain the things that you're doing. So can you talk about the accreditation process and why is that important? Well, number one, to be accredited is just like a hospital being accredited by a joint commission. It sets a standard of excellence and lets the community know that you are meeting all the community standards and that operating that way means that you get the same care in the prison facility as you would get in a local health care facility. Other than that, you Katie barred the door. As you may recall from your past experiences, a hospital had to be accredited by Joint Commission in order to receive Medicare funds. That, of course, does not apply to the prisons, but it is the same quality which is so important. And in order to attain that quality, we take a four-man team, an accreditation team, into the facilities. And we review some 41 essential standards and 26 important standards. Now, in order to be accredited, to even be considered to be accredited by the committee, you have to make an absolute score of 100 on those 41 essential standards. You can make 85% on the others. But the important standards would include such things as credentials. But, but there's very important to, to be accredited because, again, it goes back to ensuring that these particular patients – um, are being cared for. And, you know, regardless of whether they're incarcerated, whether they're in, you know, uh, just everyday people in, in the walk of life, people still need medical care. And that's the whole purpose of this committee. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we're talking about here is a, as it relates to the correctional medicine uh, program is accrediting them and interviewing the facilities, making sure that uh, these particular 
points are met with a high level of, of performance. Um, I think there's probably some folks in the community that might think, well, geez, what does it really matter? Because and take a, a harsh view uh, of provide how we provide health care to someone who's incarcerated but the reality of it is there's a number of reasons why it's important to not take that kind of view for one we're 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 a human society we try to right. be we try to be fair and judicious in the way we administer punishment for example and we try to treat humans as humans even if they have m- made uh, mistakes or, or even egregious uh, crimes for example we still treat people as humans even though they're incarcerated but beyond that uh, from what I understand, that taking this type of step and, and accrediting facilities and making sure that they're providing a high level of care will reduce risk in terms of uh, the prisoners have some measure of rights as a as an inmate. They they can they can raise charges, if you will, or raise assertions of maltreatment that could result in legal battles or or legal settlements, for example, that cost us in the system additional monies that cost a lot of money to handle that kind of thing. But then also, not all of these people are going to stay incarcerated for all of their days, and they're going to return, hopefully, um, to to the community uh, in a better place and be able to resume their life um, amongst the rest of us in the community. And if we've kind of allowed them to languish from a health perspective, they may come back. I know um, you were saying before we went on the air today about the fact that we talked about that, that the, from a perspective of uh, communicable diseases of a variety of types like TB, HIV, um, some STD type things and others um, that are out there that, that we need to be mindful of that and to be delivering good health care to these people while they're incarcerated. No question about that. You know, the inmates' rights are protected by the Eighth Amendment on the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. But, you know, talking about sending things out to the communities, when these inmates come in, you would be surprised at the maladies that they have. But working within the system and provision of the medications which are provided by Georgian Regents University, we so often are able to cure many of these things before they ever leave and go back to the communities from whence they came. Hence, that's a plus for community health. Also, should they leave and still have some of these maladies, the facility provides to them either five days, 10 days, or 15 days worth of medication, depending on what it is and where they're going, to ensure that they carry that immunity with them, so to speak, back to the community. The facility call, calls the local health care facilities, community health care facilities, not a hospital, and notifies them that inmate Jones or inmate Smith is coming and what they have. So there's a continuity there to assist them in being able to continue the medications and to get rid of whatever is bothering them. So when they get back to the community, then they can pick up with the provider there locally and continue on whatever care may be necessary if there is some. Certainly that's true. And also what it does is it helps manage their chronic conditions so that when they do get back into the community, there is a a management side of it so that they don't continue to deteriorate. Um, in their health. And we talked about communicable diseases, but uh, you touched on something just now that I'm sure is just as prevalent among the incarcerated population as it is in the general community, and that is chronic diseases like, say, diabetes, for example, or heart disease, things that are serious issues that need constant management, that need good follow-up, or they can turn into a very serious health event um, that bears a lot of cost to go along with it, for example, if someone has to go to the hospital to get care. Um, So being able to 
come out of a well-run accredited program like we're talking about here that's being overseen uh, closely and how do we do things then may deliver this person back in a higher state of health and then also allow them to swing into the care of somebody here locally so that we can contain overall costs and health. A good, a good example of that is an inmate who's insulin dependent. Yeah. Obviously they can't go more than three days and then they hit a blank wall. So they've got to have that insulin and they of course do not have permission to have insulin on that person, nor can they have the syringe and needle inside the wire, so to speak, meaning the facility itself. But once they step outside, medical can hand them that paper bag with those supplies in it, which they take with them, and that will tie them over until they get to the community health facility. You also brought up a point a moment ago about why be accredited. One thing that the judicial system in the state of Georgia has come to realize, whether it's local, county, or federal, is that if they are accredited by the Medical Association of Georgia, they know that that facility is meeting the community standards. Hence, the person that's being sued usually is one one leg up on the ladder, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a judge sees that. He knows that they've met it, so he's going to say, well, does the lawsuit really have any basis then? Right. So you can mitigate your risk by being accredited. And and as we look across the state – how many do we have left out there in terms of correctional facilities that offer medical care that are yet to be accredited? And, and to, to talk about the reasons why it may make sense for them to go through that process, because I'm sure there's some out there that say, oh, we got this, we, we can do this ourselves. All of the facilities which are owned by the state of Georgia and run by the Department of Corrections are accredited. That has been mandated by the governor of the state of Georgia. Okay, so they have to do it. They have to do it. They have no choice in it. The state also has in it three private facilities and because the three private facilities accept Georgia inmates they too must be accredited now please know that it's not like we do this all by ourselves this is in big 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 time cooperation with Georgia Regents University you've got to understand that while the Georgia the state of Georgia used to provide all the personnel equipment and supplies They no longer do that. They have an agreement with Georgia Regents University to supply all the medications, which is really fantastic because considering the amount that they purchase, they can get it for volume discounts. They provide all the people. So they look at all the qualifications of everybody that applies for a job. They vet them totally. And it's just not a, hello, how you doing? May I see your license? They go online and they check all of their backgrounds and then the equipment. Imagine the cost of replacing a dental chair or a dental operatory. Mm-hmm. Imagine the cost of replacing a OR. And we do have a facility in Georgia where there are operating room suites. And, you know, it's, it's not a cheap thing to operate. But in cooperation with them, all of these things transpire. So with Georgia Regents University, are, are there students, are they also, do they, or, or students in general in the other medical programs as well, but do they rotate through and get some clinical expertise, expertise in the correctional facilities as part of their training? Or I'm just curious, since there is a, an interaction there with the university, or is they just mainly helping along the lines of oversight in the accreditation process? Not at the moment. They do not rotate. I see. It's, it, Clyde mentioned about uh, one of the facilities that, that has an operating room and all this. And, and I'll tell you this, is that – my experience in, in going to these sites with these physicians and with Clyde, um, 
I have seen a very dedicated group of physicians that work within correctional medicine. Additionally, I've seen very dedicated uh, nurses and all the other people that work within there and had, having the opportunity to speak to the wardens and get a, you know an idea of where they're coming from and, and you know how they have the interest of the health care of these patients uh, first and foremost has been very impressive to me because prior to getting into this role, I was not all that familiar with our program. But over the last couple of years and going uh, with Claude and the committee to these sites, I think it speaks volumes um, for where Georgia is in, in, in trying to ensure that these patients are receiving the care. Allow me for a moment to talk you through what we do in an accreditation survey sure. and what comprises a survey team. I think it will give you a good understanding of where we come from on a lot of this. Our survey team members are composed of four people. One is a physician, two is myself, three is a facility person, and the fourth is an RN. And the RN must be a registered nurse or above. <clears throat> now, when we go, obviously we have a series of pre-printed questions that we use because we've developed these through the years. Doc has one. He will go and he will interview the physician, the dentist, the psychiatrist, the psychologist. He will interview the pharmacist, all the people in the lab, all the people in x-ray. He'll look at medical records. And let me tell you something. When you look at a medical record, you better be able to determine, did that psychiatrist and that physical medicine physician communicate? Because if you don't, you could have medications which are contraindicated in a heartbeat. The nurse will interview a minimum of four nurses. She'll look at the intake process. She'll look at the transfer process. How long did it take them to get the medications once they came in? The facility man will do a walk around. And in that walk around, he will not only interview correctional officers to say, how good is the medical unit functioning? How, if you need to talk to them, how hard is it to talk to them? Do they communicate with you? He'll interview inmates. He'll ask them similar questions, but not quite the same. When he's dealing with inmates, he'll try and find out, well, where do you get a sick call slip? When do you turn it in? How soon are you seen once you're turned in? Do you get a good response? And what if you don't like the response? What can you do about it? I'm charged with talking with the warden and looking at credentials, looking at CQI, infection control, and some of those things. So it's an all-inclusive situation. And when we leave at the end of a day or the end of two days, whatever the case might be, we've got a good feel for that facility. It's often said that you can tell how a facility is going to do on a survey the first 30 minutes that you're there. So often that's true, and I won't deny it. But as you just heard Donald articulate, the warden, everything starts at the top. It depends on the warden, really, and the warden's attitude. Some of them are very uptight. Some of them are by the book. And, you know, it just depends on the facility. But each one of them has their own method of doing business. Each medical department is headed up by a health services administrator. Each mental health department is headed up by a psychiatrist. So working together as a healthcare team, all this comes together. If there's a pharmacy on board, hey, more power to them. But Georgia does not have the luxury of having a pharmacy in every site. They have a pharmacy key located in the regions and the region services of the facilities. Likewise, that's true for the infirmaries. Every prison does not have a prison infirmary. Those are regional infirmaries. And if there's a hospital required, they have a major facility in Augusta, Georgia for major surgery if need be. Likewise, you know, the university is over there, too, so if they can't handle anything, that's there. But in case of emergency, regardless of where you are in the state of Georgia, if that should occur, the local physician has the authority to make the decision to send that inmate out to 
a local physician, a local hospital, and have the procedure accomplished. So when you're going in with your team and you're doing the accreditation process, and let's say you identify a, an item or two or however many it may be, but you've, you find a, a few things that may be deficient as it relates to the standards that you've set aside, what's the process like for them to get it in line so that they can you know, achieve their accreditation standing? Fair question. It's accomplished by one of two ways. If they are Johnny on the spot and it's nothing really super-duper major, normally they can correct it before we ever leave the facility. If they cannot correct it prior to departure, then we normally give them up until the time that the committee meets. And the committee meets at the call of the chairman, Dr. Patton Smith. And periodically they meet usually four times a year. And so they have 60 days normally after we depart the facility to provide us a list of corrective action that they have accomplished. Now, if it should be something which involves controlled substances, needles and syringes or something of that nature, then we will go back for a focused site visit to ascertain that, in fact, the counts are correct and the pharmaceuticals are properly accounted for. In preparation for an accreditation site visit, if you were to have a new facility coming on board, the Medical Association does offer technical support visits whereby we can go out to the facility, we can assist them in the preparation for their accreditation site visit. So at the date and time of their choosing to have us come and do a full-blown accreditation, hopefully they will breeze through it. We've been talking with Clyde Maxwell, the Director of the Correctional Medicine for Medical Association of Georgia and uh, Medical Association of Georgia's Executive Director and CEO, Donald Palmisano, learning a little bit about the uh, correctional medicine program uh, that's a part of the, the efforts uh, overseen by the Medical Association of Georgia. And on the other end of the spectrum, when uh, you've come through and identified uh, a program that's providing care at a very high level. Uh, from what I understand, there's awards that you can win and be recognized for that. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe shed some light on some of the programs that are on that end of the scale? Because I'm sure there are some out there. Certainly. In an effort to recognize facilities which truly are just unbelievably fantastic, the committee decided to develop a, an award named for a former orthopedic surgeon at the, at the then Medical College in Georgia, a Dr. Blevin. And this is given to any prison, prison, mind you, within the state of Georgia, whether it's private or DOC, when they have a squeaky clean accreditation site visit. Absolutely nothing is wrong. I mean, just super duper. And we've awarded that over the past three years to Hancock State Prison, Washington State Prison, and this year we're going down to Columbus, Georgia, to Rutledge State Prison. Now, please note that there's no requirement on the part of the committee to give out these awards at all on a yearly basis. So if they don't have anybody that they feel is meeting that criteria, they don't give it. They are very jealous of these awards. But remember now, we also accredit jails within the state. And they named that award after Herman E. Spivey, a physician who was out of North Georgia to, to, to Chautauqua County, to be exact. <laughs> and he was an original member of the committee. And we gave that award to first uh, Douglas County Jail, and this year it's going to a very, very small facility outside of Athens in Oconee County to the Oconee County Jail. And when the warden, not the warden, but when the sheriff learned of that the other day, he was just ecstatic. He couldn't believe their facility. <laughs> one doctor, one nurse had won that award. 
And we're really looking forward to presenting it to them. And, you know, it typifies, it, it's just so wonderful when you can go and do things like that to facilities to recognize them for the effort that they put forth. Because, you know, this isn't just a hurry up and get ready, mag's coming type thing. Right. This is an ongoing thing. We, we don't go in unannounced. That's a forbidden thing. You just don't do that. So we feel like for them to be recognized for that is just super. So can you talk a little bit about what are the things are they doing at the at the high end that really begins to put them above beyond just passing? You're accredited, you you've you've gotten our seal of approval and you get your accreditation status, but you've gone above and beyond. Are there certain key things that you find that those organizations are doing, um, whether it's record keeping, what, whatever it may be? Can you talk about that so that I would imagine that many of the members that are going to be listening to today's show, um, whether it's live or after the fact, will probably come from that space. So can you talk about as a person who comes to the facility to handle the accreditation process, what are the things that make those facilities really stand out? You are doing it not only well, but better than everybody else. Have you ever gone to a medical records room and tried to find a particular medical record? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. If you're able to go and find what you're looking for with no problem, great. But you ask for a particular examples. Each standard has a series of things under it that a person has to meet in order to be qualified as having passed that example. Now, if we, if we find something minor, minor, we might write it up as a recommendation right. as opposed to a finding, which is a deficiency. So a committee, a facility which would be qualified for either the Blevin Award or the Spivey Award would have met all of the criteria for both the essential as well as the other facilities, and they will also have to qualify for the Spivey Award the same way, but with no recommendations at all. I see. And and so on the other end of things, do you see some kind of, when we're finding deficiencies, are there some areas where they tend to come? It sounds like record keeping is one of those. Do we have an organized record keeping system? Are we documenting our care effectively so that when we say, hey, how, how did you talked about the fact, does, does this provider communicate or document their communication with the other providers of the team to ensure that uh, medications, for example, are, are not being prescribed parallel to each other that could cause interactions. Can you, can you talk about where are some of the areas that we typically see in our correctional medicine healthcare delivery space that we usually have missteps where we could really, if we could really on an ongoing basis kind of put a greater focus here, then our overall performance would probably improve collectively. There's only one answer to that. That's continuous quality improvement. That will trip up a facility in a heartbeat. And in order to have a perfect CQI program, you have to have total cooperation of not only the medical staff, but the correctional staff and the warden in a facility. And if you have a health, a um, mental health staff, that must include them. In the CQI, so often you will find the physical medicine staff will meet but the mental health staff will not participate. For example, if the mental health staff is using forced medications on an inmate, that must be reported not only in the CQI minutes for the mental health staff, but it must also be reported in the CQI minutes for the physical medicine staff. It is paramount that the psychiatrist attend the facility CQI meetings. It has to be a team effort. It must include such things as 
the dietitian from food service. Have you ever thought about what would happen if you had a foodborne disease, a foodborne bug of any sort, run through a facility? Mm. You know, when we go to a facility, we have one of the persons who looks at that checks to make sure that he finds frozen meals for three consecutive days so that if something should start like that within the facility, they have a means of going back and looking at the food samples that were served and ascertain did it come from there or not. And what's the rhythm for accreditation? Is it two or three years? Is that how often are the, are you inspecting and in doing your accreditation visits? We do an on-site visit every three years, and during the interim years, we do a maintenance report, which is a very detailed report which the facility fills out and sends back the documented inf- information for the committee to consider. The decision is made by the committee as a whole. The committee cur- consists of five members, and they're all physicians. And, and one, one of the things, when, when you do see a deficiency w- within a, uh, a prison, is the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion uh, with those members of the facility and the staff and say, okay, how can we improve this to make sure that um, going forward that uh, this issue is resolved and that you continue to always try to improve the quality for the patients within the facility. Right. And, and I'm sure as you're interacting with patients there, I would presume that some of them you want to use that interaction as an opportunity to complain. But I'm, I'm interested to know, do you find getting feedback from patients that, you know, that are incarcerated but maybe have positive stories about how the care that they've received has helped them or, you know, given you positive stories that, uh, you know, that you, the, the care that they're receiving has made an impression on them in a positive way? I would presume so, since there's Obviously, some facilities out there that are doing things at a high level from a medical perspective, it would seem that there might be some victory stories, if you will, from the ladies and gentlemen that you're taking care of in the correctional medicine space. I'd love to tell you, yes. But the stories that we hear most frequently, oh, why didn't I get this? Oh, why can't I have that? And as you might imagine, within a system as large as a correctional system, yeah. Georgia Regents University makes a decision as to what particular brand of pharmaceutical is going to be furnished. And so often, it's not the name brand pharmaceutical. For example, Mm -hmm. Lyrica, popular on the market today for pain relief. If if Lyrica is what the inmate was on when he comes into the facility, he may not receive Lyrica once he's in the facility. That's a local physician's decision. Um, And we receive letters from the inmates periodically specifying, well, I didn't get this, I didn't get that. And then we have a review process that we follow in sending that back to the facility and asking them to provide the details on what did take place or what needs to occur. And that's what I was going to follow up with was when you're getting feedback, I mean, clearly some of it you're not necessarily going to be able to do anything about. I mean, I know that sometimes it is what it is, but is there a process? What is that like? Are you able to sometimes take action and make some changes based on that type of patient feedback from from within the correctional medicine groups? I I think – what we try to do is, if we do receive feedback, is to listen to it, but also recognize that um, you know, there's only so much that the system can possibly do because right. you know, healthcare, even if you, look at, um, if you look at the Medicaid programs, you look at Medicare, you look at state health benefit programs, um, while we would all like certain care and certain medications, um, it's just not possible yeah, within the cost constraints right, right. that we all have to deal with. So, you know, it's, it, to us, it, it, we do what we can on the accreditation side to ensure that the standards are met 
and recognize that there are certain um, constraints within the system that we all live by, um, even patients that are within who are incarcerated and patients that, like you and I, who are not incarcerated, and we all have the con- those same constraints. From the perspective of the providers that provide care at, in the correctional medicine uh, space, is there challenges? I, I know that in, if you look at our rural communities, for example, trying to get primary care and even you know beyond that, specialists of any kind uh, to be filling the medical needs in those spaces, as we've talked about before, is one of the reasons why we kind of touched on that topic when we were talking about foreign medical graduates, for example. Mm-hmm. But from the perspective of th- those particular health delivery sites having the providers they need, what's this? What's the climate like for them? Are they struggling to kind of like the rural community? Are they looking for providers? And if so, can you talk some about the benefits of providing care in a space like that? Because I'm sure there are some. Right. I think what you see is we've noted there is a a physician shortage in Georgia. So um, the shortage doesn't only impact the commercial market. It it impacts, um, you know, Medicaid, the, the, the public markets, but also, you know, correctional medicine. And you know, there's always a struggle within um, all of Georgia to make sure that uh, you have the, the, the number of physicians that are needed to provide that care. So I, I don't think the, the sh- it's just limited to correctional medicine. I, I think it's limited to all of parts of Georgia. I mean, we know that there are over 60 counties that are lacking OBGYN care. And, and so that's a challenge that we're dealing with. We know that we have roughly 35% of the physicians in Georgia roughly are uh, primary care. We need over 40%. And so a lot of that goes down to the residency requirements or the residency um, availability from the federal government that comes down uh, for, for the residency slots that Georgia is notoriously short because it's based on a census from the 1990s wow. versus some <laughs> of the, the, the northern states which have lost population, but yet they still retain those residency slots that they were given from right. the 1990s. So we end up educating a large number of medical students who become physicians and because we don't have the residency slots we send them up north and so what we do know is that physicians end up practicing in an area where they did their residency so that's why we're losing a lot of physicians even though we're educating a a, a large yeah, number, a number of, of schools yeah and i know that that's one of the big things that you're working on right now is to try to get current if you will the number of seats that we have available for residents to get their uh, postgraduate training handled here in this in the state, because one, that's one of the things that we talked about uh, on the previous episode, as it relates to the physician shortage, is that people tend to to stay where they end up going for their postgraduate. Not not always, but by that time they've been in a, in a community for several years in most cases, and. Uh, kind of getting to the end of my training. I kind of like it here, so I think I'm going to stay. It seems like if you can get them to be resident someplace, that there's a decent chance that you can actually retain them. Right, exactly. And what, one of the other things that we're working on, and, and it deals with increasing the number of physicians, especially in the rural areas, and especially in those programs such as Medicaid, is trying to continue the payments that physicians have received, primary care physicians, for the years 2013 and 2014, um, for those physicians to have equal payment um, in the Medicaid program equivalent to Medicare. And so that's one of our legislative priorities right now down at the Capitol is 
trying to make sure that that payment is extended because the New England Journal of Medicine just came out with a report that said that um, based on payments, on Medicaid payments that were increased to Medicare rates, they have seen an increase in the number of appointments made by Medicaid patients. So while they can't definitively say that more physicians have taken Medicaid, they have noticed that more appointments have been available uh, for Medicaid patients. Um, so are there are there some other topics around the, the correctional medicine uh, kind of discussion that we have that we can really bring some light to? Are there additional resources that if we only had this, as one of the things that we try to do with our Health Connect South radio show is, is illuminate in the healthcare space? Are there resources, whether they're public-private collaborations that might be able to provide? I know funding, as we talked about earlier, is one of those types of things where um, that's a big constraint and on a number of fronts. Um, are there possibilities? Because I, I, I'm, I'm not very versed in in that particular arena, but are there possibilities for some sorts of public-private collaborations that can provide either resources, whether they're, uh, I don't know, equipment that's needed or, or financial uh, kind of support that might be able to kind of help facilitate the, the correctional medicine space that, that are out there? I'm just, it's an esoteric question, I suppose, but it's just one of those things that if there are resources as you sit around the table in the meeting thinking, gosh, if we had more of this or, or if we had additional that, um, things might be better for us here. One of the things that we're doing each year is meeting with the Georgia Sheriff's Association on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And it's through those meetings that gradually, very slowly, the jails within the state of Georgia are asking to be accredited. Now, I mentioned the one over in Oconee County, a very small one. But we also have very large jails, such as Chatham County, over 2,000 beds in Savannah. Wow. But you've got to realize how many counties there are in the state. And it's a county option. So the county commissioners have got to see the value of accreditation to know why we should do it. Quite frankly, if they could accomplish accreditation, they might be able to decrease the amount of infectious disease that they have within their own communities. And that's obviously going to bear a cost. Well, of course well. it is. Of course it is. And speaking of cost, that's one reason that the Georgia Sheriff's Association is pushing so to get the inmates out of their jails into the Georgia Department of Corrections because, you know, while they're there, they got to pay for them. So what's the process like as you're interfacing with some of those uh, health care delivery sites that are within the correctional system that aren't part of your program? They're not being accredited. They're doing it on their own. Their, their county or their particular facility is opting to kind of do it yourself, if you will. What's the process like for trying to help illuminate some of those benefits that you can highlight? Hey, you can reduce legal risk. You can reduce your risk of exposure to cost that comes from, from any of that, as well as the cost to care for things that may have been able to be avoided um, had we been accredited. I think one of the things that the Medical Association of Georgia has done is um, Clyde and, and the committee brought back um, standards for jails and showing the sheriffs the value of, of what that accreditation can bring. You know, it's like anything else. Um, each community is different. Each community has different resources available, um, and, and that includes you know, some of the infrastructures that each community needs. And so they're limited by the funds that, that are there. And so one of the things that we've tried to do uh, within the, the jails is to put forth some standards to help um, make it more affordable for the jails uh, to become accredited, 
which is different than the prisons, obviously. Well, I would imagine that if you're not going through the process of accreditation, you're still you still got to spend on on whatever management and oversight and addressing some of the challenges that we've already seen through uh, your collaboration with the correctional medicine f- space. You know, you're able to demonstrate that costs and, and exposure is reduced. So I'm, I'm sure that as you start to show some of the uh, care that's being provided in the, the programs that you're overseeing, that that will probably pull some more of those programs in as you're showing success. Let me give you a case in point. In the early 2000s, it only cost a county jail $600 to be accredited. That was the least amount of money that the team would go out and accredit the facility for. And a facility west of Atlanta decided at that point the county commissioners made the decision that that was too much money. They couldn't afford it. They were accredited at that time, but they decided to drop their accreditation. And they subsequently became involved in a, in a major lawsuit. And the sheriff from that association stood up at the Georgia Sheriff's Association and told them exactly how much the resulting lawsuit cost them. Right. And, and that was a good turning point for the sheriffs. They could see right there the value that had this facility been accredited, they might not have had to go through all that. It sounds like as you've interfaced with the Sheriff's Association that doing so, because I, I can imagine there's a bit of a shift in perspective because they're thinking behavior modification and things like that or, or you know, punishment, if you will. They're, they're managing a prisoner. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a bit of a shift, at least in a lot of those folks, from thinking about them in that perspective to kind of redirecting and seeing this person as a patient or a prospective patient. Uh, and and so to be able to think about those issues probably takes a little bit of education over time, as, as it sounds like, as you've you know, kind of brought them along over time, being able to highlight why do we need to care about this? It it it, it may seem at first blush that it's not something I'm 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 the sheriff of a of a jail. I've got a I've got a jail to run, um, and I'm not all that worried about you know how much documentation is in some patient chart, for example. I've got too many other things to worry about. But it sounds like through this process, you're able to kind of help illustrate, hey, this taking better care of these people medically has a lot of effects beyond just um, treating them as a patient. But there's there's public health risks that we have to deal with. There's actually public cost, even if while they're incarcerated, things like that. So as you've interfaced with those types of associations, it would seem that that's starting to maybe have an effect and bring more of those uh, jails and correctional facilities into the program. It would certainly be nice to think so. We're happy and willing to do that. While I was driving back from a facility the other day, I got a call from a physician who has a, uh, a jail over in, let's see, it's middle Georgia. And he wanted to know what it cost and how much it would take him to get accredited and how to go about doing it. And we were happy to tell him over the phone. And he's going to be meeting with us to look at the possibility. Now, of course, he's got to go and convince his sheriff that that's a doable thing. And the sheriff's got to convince the county commissioners. But it's an easy process. It's not hard at all. A simple phone call. We're happy to help. We're happy to talk. We're happy to provide all the resources, and we have the resources. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like falling off a log. There's, there's nothing to it. It sounds like there may be resources. If I'm either thinking about it, you're, you're describing the fact that you'll certainly guide a, a new facility through the process and help them understand what they need to be doing to provide that high level of care that you're trying to create. Um, but uh, in between, for a facility that's in the program, they're they're getting accredited on a regular rhythm. Um, maybe they've not been one of those 
top performing in terms of really knocking the top off with their scores? So there's some deficiencies or some recommendations here and there. Is there? I imagine there's some probably opportunities to collaborate with you in between those things to to kind of shore up and to kind of better prepare in the long run, be well ahead of your next accreditation process. Can they? I guess in between their accreditation visits, they can collaborate with you and say, Hey, how can we improve this? Like you talked about the CQI side of things. Can you help them develop a program that will, you know, do that performance improvement kind of process? Absolutely. And we do that through technical support visits. They're usually one day visits. Uh, the facility chooses the topics they want to talk about unless they want us to do a mini accreditation while we're there on just the medical department. Cause Lord of mercy, with one or two people going out for the focus site visit, there's no way you'd cover a whole facility. Sure. But you move like gangbusters, and you go through, and at the end of the day, you can tell the facility, okay, here's what you really need to do. Here's what you've got to focus on, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's infection control, whether it's your actual CQI program and who attends. I'd also point out to you one other thing. The nursing service within the Department of Corrections is superb. They are unique individuals. Not everybody's cut out to be a correctional nurse. A lot of people will tell you, well, you know, that's where people go that couldn't get a job elsewhere. Let me tell you something. That's not true. I, I know that to be true. I worked in locum tenens placement for a while, working with physicians, helping them cover uh, positions of need. And I can tell you that uh, the physicians that we were placing in, in the correctional medicine space were just like what you're illustrating, that they were true providers. They just had a willing and a compassion to be able to work in that particular space with that particular patient population. That's true. The one thing we do try and overcome with the nursing service is their fear of a patient or fear of being unprotected while they're there or fear of being attacked. That, you know, perhaps 20 or 30 years ago that might have been the case. That's not the case today. The security within the medical unit is crackerjack. There's never anything like that going to occur. Now, having said that, it'll happen tomorrow. But no, routinely, no, it's not going to occur. And that, that was echoed certainly by the, the correctional facilities that I was able to interface with throughout my work in that particular arena as well, that uh, they talked very clearly about these are the, the protection measures that we have, and it is actually very safe. And I would presume um, that for the patients that are seeking care, I mean, some of them may be trying to get out of uh, – whatever detention they may be in just to get to the medical unit in, in time. But from what I understand, most of the patients that were seeking care were truly that. They were patients, and they, they respected the fact that they were being cared for with compassion by, you know, qualified healthcare providers. So it's it's nice to highlight that. And before we run out of time, we've been talking with Donald Pomisano and Clyde Maxwell, the, the director of uh, correctional medicine for the Medical Association of Georgia, do you have any parting thoughts before we run out of time? I mean, our, our hour always goes by so quickly, so we want to make sure that we help get all the information out there about correctional medicine that we can. You mentioned the shortage of physicians. The Georgia Regents University does allow the particular sites where the facilities are located to go to temporary physicians when a full-time physician departs, so there's never any shortage there. The thing after that is to vet the physician. That takes time to get the new physician on board. You've been there. You've mm -hmm, done that. Mm -hmm. the, the same thing is true about nurses. Nurses' salaries change routinely from town to town. And nurses will move for 10 cents an hour. That's a known fact. So you constantly, unless you really have a nurse who is dedicated to what she's doing, you stand to have that constant rotation. Right now within the system, everybody seems to be very, very pleased the way they are. 
That's great. And what about you, Donald? Any of the parting thoughts before we run out of time? Well, I tell you, it, I, it's been an honor to work with our, uh, the physicians and, and the medical staff that, that are part of the correctional medicine program. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I've seen a different side of, of what goes on um, within the accreditation and to make sure that these patients are cared for. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great part of MAG um, to be a part of. And I would encourage physicians or any other nurses or other healthcare providers that have any interest to please reach out to us uh, because we're always interested in, in, in people who want to be a part of the accreditation process. And even if people just want to know more about the correctional medicine program, we're always more than happy to discuss it with them. Um, sitting here today, do you have anything coming up for the Medical Association of Georgia that might be good to throw out to your members to know about? Uh, right now, we're in the process uh, of, of raising money for our Think About It campaign, oh, yeah. which is curbing prescription drug abuse, and, and we've had that discussion here. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're in the process of doing is that uh, Trey Reese and I, Trey Reese is an attorney with Hall Booth and uh, Smith, we're in the process of, uh, we've signed up for a race. It's a 100-mile race. Each of us will be running 100 miles um, on our own, not, not um, like a relay race. It's, it's the Umstead Endurance Race. And so part of that is we're raising money. Um, all that money will 100% go to the Think About It campaign. It will go towards um, providing uh, naloxone kits uh, to, for first responders, but also it will go to continue to educate patients and physicians and other providers on the dangers of prescription drug abuse. So we have a spot on our website for those that are interested. We have a goal of 25000 Um In the last week and a half or two weeks, we've raised uh, $13,000. Oh, wow. So we're, we're really uh, excited about it. And um, you can go to www.mag.org. And it's on the carousel. You'll see a picture of um, myself and um, also Trey Reese. Um, who, who will be doing this campaign. So each of you has got to cover 100 miles. Correct. And what, what time frame do you have to do it in again? 25, uh, we're figuring about 25 <laughs> hours. <laughs> so what's your training like? I mean, where are you in the process now, mileage-wise? I'm, I'm at the I don't mean to digress too much, but that's pretty impressive. I'm, I'm at the very end of the training. We just ran a 50-mile race um, up in Cloudland Canyon about three weeks ago. In the beginning of December, we ran uh, 36 <laughs> miles up in uh, Black Rock Mountain. And then we've got a marathon coming up. We've, we've calculated that by the time we, if we complete the race and able to finish it, we will have run um, the equivalent of about 11 marathons in the last wow. um, 10 months. Amazing. Good job, you guys. What, so a, thank what you. a cool thing that you're doing. And I'm very happy to help you uh, share some information about it. So out there, if you're one of the MAG members or just one of our casual listeners, please go to the, the MAG website. Tell the MAG website again. Uh, www.mag.org. And uh, share the Facebook and Twitter because I know you're on both. Um, our, our Twitter account is um, at MAG1849. Yeah. And my Twitter account is um, at dpalmazano, M-A-G. Okay. And, uh, of course, we link in with you as well. So if, if folks uh, are tied into the Top Docs radio show on Facebook and Twitter, we tie into the uh, guest sites as well, including MAG. Um, and uh, 
what a cool thing, man. I'm impressed by that and I uh, hope you hit your goal. That's, uh, that's well, an awesome you. undertaking that you're doing. And uh, Clyde, I want to say thanks to you to traveling down to uh, our studio. I know you had to drive a little ways to get to us and sounds like you got a trip yet to go uh, to uh, get back to where you're going after the show today. So thanks for making some time today. It's been our pleasure to be here. We appreciate the opportunity. And of course, that was Donald Pomizano that was talking there, the uh, executive director and CEO of Medical Association of Georgia and Tom Cornegay. He's here in studio, sitting here kind of quietly watching the the affair. But uh, I want to say to all the folks at the Medical Association of Georgia, thank you very much for taking time to collaborate with us here on the show and share some great information about some things that are going on that affect our medical providers out there. I'm very happy to be able to participate with you and sharing that kind of information and interacting with the medical community. And to Krista Baruti. Thanks for letting me push your button, CW. (laughs) Every week, all day long on Tuesdays. Just over here pushing buttons. (laughs) (laughs) She makes it happen. And so uh, all of you out there, thank you very much for making us a part of your afternoon again today. I look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week.